Hear the word of the Lord from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to this very sobering word and ask that you would um, give us grace to hear it, to listen, to be honest about when it really does expose us and and capture what's going on in us and between us. Uh, But we also ask, Father, that you would encourage us, uh, don't leave us wallowing in our grief over our sin, but show us Jesus and give us hope. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you watch, if you watch much uh, 24-7 cable news, You've been inundated lately with at least two kinds of video footage. Um, first and mostly, uh, we've seen the war and conflict between Hamas and Israel. Just daily video footage of that conflict. But there's another kind of footage that I've noticed uh, has been shown a lot lately, and maybe not as much since this war began, but but uh, have you seen the footage of the looting that's been taking place in major cities like San Francisco and Philadelphia? Just unbelievable uh, mobs of people just overwhelming a store, breaking in and violently taking everything they want and escaping 
and don't get in their way. Um, those images in our minds, um, with those images in our minds, I, I would think, and I, I'll go out on a limb to say this, I, I think that if James were here today with us, he would say that those are vivid pictures of how we treat one another sometimes. And he's writing, remember, he's writing to churches. He's writing to Christian brothers and sisters. He would say, I believe, that those are vivid, the war between Hamas and Israel and the looting, the violent looting that's been taking place are vivid pictures of the way we treat each other. And, and the reason I say that is because of the words he uses. The word he uses, quarrels, was a word that was used in his culture to describe armed conflict between nations. It could have been translated wars or battles. Quarrels is a little soft, actually. Um, that sounds kind of like a spat. We're talking about armed conflict. James says that our conflict with one another is like war. And then he says that the cause for the conflict between us, uh, I think he would say, sounds like this looting that we see on TV. He says, you desire and do not have, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you resort to violence to get what you want. And in the context of what James has just said about the way we curse one another with our words in chapter 3, he's not necessarily talking about physical violence, although that happens in our conflicts with one another at times. He's talking about how we speak to and about one another when we're in conflict with one another. He's saying that our words are violent. And when he says this, he's echoing his brother Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, or in our vernacular, you idiot, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so echoing Jesus, James says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder with your words. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you go to war. And James will even say in verse 11 here in a little bit, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Our words are warring words, James says. Now, you might say, to James if he were to suggest that our conflicts with each other are like those things we've seen on the news. You might say, well, James, that's, that's a little extreme. I mean, honestly, how can you compl compare our conflicts to Hamas and Israel? Come on. Hamas is killing women and beheading children, James. And at that point, James might look at some of us husbands and fathers, and I include myself, 
might look at some of us husbands and fathers in the eye with a tender, a tender strength, a compassionate courage and say, my brother, do you not remember that Solomon said in Proverbs 12, rash words are like the thrusts of a sword. Rash words are like the thrusts of a sword. My brother, you spend all day at work where people respect your knowledge and your ability to get things done. But you come home and you feel incompetent to lead your wife and you feel disrespected by your kids. And so sometimes you speak rashly like you have no filter. Your condescending snarky remarks are thrusts of the blade in the belly of your wife. I had a counselor tell me that one time. James would say, every irritated outburst at your children is a swing of the sword at their necks. James would say, as he said in chapter 3, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And he would say, you know, dear brother, I know, dear brother, and you know, that's not who you want to be. It's not who you want to be to your family because you're a man who has been saved by Jesus and filled with his spirit. So my brother, these things ought not to be so, and I know you don't want them to be so. But really, what we're seeing on TV, brother, is not so far fetched and removed from the way we treat one another. James is serious about this. We think our little quarrels and fights with each other are not that big a deal. But James uses the most provoking word pictures that he could possibly use to tell us how poorly we relate to one another. Relationship is so crucial to discipleship. And in verses 2 to 4, we find out why James is so serious about the way we argue and fight with one another. It's because it has something to do, not merely with our relationship with one another, but with our relationship with God. Listen to what he says. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And he means you do not ask God. You ask him and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You want to spend it on your own passions, or that word is pleasures. You want to spend, you ask God for these things you desire, but he's not going to give them to you because you're asking to use them for your own pleasure. And then he gets, this is where, oh, you adulterous people. Wow, James. You're committing adultery against God, James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Hatred toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
James is serious about this because at the heart of our conflict with one another is our adultery and betrayal toward God. We've left our best friend, our husband, the one who loves us and gave himself for us, and we've run to other lovers who will never love us like he does. James is trying to get our attention. And then notice one more clue to how serious James believes our conflict is. And that is the intensity of the emotion and action in the words and phrases he uses to describe how we should respond to our betrayal of God, to our cheating on God. Listen to this in verses 8 and 9. James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we saw back in chapter 1, double-minded means double-hearted. You say you love God, but you really love yourself over here. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, which means be miserable, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's some intense emotional language. And James takes our conflict seriously because it reveals a heart that's dismissed God. A heart that's dismissed God as the one who truly pleases us and can truly fulfill us. It reveals a heart that, that then, because it's dismissed God and what he can do to fulfill our desires, it turns horizontally to others and, and demands what we think will please us from the people around us. And when those people don't come through or they get in the way, it's knives out. James is serious. I think this might be a helpful illustration to understand what James is getting at about our conflicts. And this might help actually with parents. You may want to use this with your children or wives with your husband, I'm just saying. Um, Our conflicts with each other are like sharks in the water. Now, you know a shark's coming along because you see its fin, (laughs) right? Everybody can hear the theme of jaws right now in their head. Here comes the fin. Well, the fin is the conflict, but we all know that if we see a fin, we know that there is a big hungry beast connected to it underneath the waterline. And that's what James is saying. When you see the fin of conflict in your relationships, look for the hungry heart attached to it under the waterline. There's something that you want that you're not getting in that relationship, and so out come the teeth. But (laughs) what I love about this passage is that James not only conveys to us how serious this issue is, he shows us what to do with it when, it, when the fin shows up. And so for the rest of our time, I, I want to walk through the passage, and uh, man, James is so practical here, and I would like to 
use what James is saying in these verses as, as a way for us to um, take a conflict that we're in and examine it and, and have a path to walk through it, okay? Because I think that's what he's doing here. Um, and much of what I'm about to say will be in the email, the SOA email that comes out at noon. So there's going to be a lot of things here that you might want to write down, but don't worry about having to write everything down if you're a note taker. It's coming. Um, and hopefully you can use it as a template to work through um, conflicts that you're in. So, you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the gospel waltz? And if we have that slide, there we go. The gospel waltz, these are uh, the three ways that we saw in chapter 1, and I think is throughout the New Testament, how we respond to God's word, particularly the good news, the word of truth about Jesus. Our hearts respond in repentance, in believing Jesus again, believing the gospel again, and then out of that, we continue to follow him in the power of the Spirit. Uh, we obey him. Well, I think that's what James is laying out here for us. He's giving us an opportunity again to repent and believe and follow Jesus. So let me, let me show you um, how I see that in these verses. But before we do that, I want you to think of a conflict that you're currently in with someone, or perhaps you've been in recently. Could be a, a husband-wife conflict, co-worker conflict, boss conflict, uh, friends at school uh, that you're in conflict with, um, a, a fellow church member. Could be a parent-child conflict. Um, think for a moment uh, about a fresh conflict that you're in and uh, and then let's think through this repent believe and follow Jesus together so repent um, James says a lot about this and probably the most about this actually in verses 1 through 10 James helps us understand the depth and darkness of our own contribution to the conflict so the idea in this uh, is that we think about our own contribution. It may help to think about these things and the other person's contribution, but it may not help as much. It won't help as much. Let's think about ourselves. Um, so start with describing um, the conflict. What is the conflict about? That's what James is doing in verses 1 and 2. He's describing this conflict. So... Ask yourself, what are the emotions that you're feeling in this conflict? What are the words that you're saying in this conflict? What are the actions you're taking in this conflict? And the basic question is, as you describe the conflict in, in prayerful consideration to yourself, the question is, what are you contributing to this conflict? And after describing it, then look at what you're desiring. Describing and then desiring. Where is my part of the conflict coming from? That's the question James is asking. And uh, what, ask this question, what do I want 
that I'm not getting from this other person. That could be as simple and silly as yesterday, Christine wanted to go for a hike. I wanted to make sure that I was in a, 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 on the couch at noon to watch the Vols because it was a guaranteed exciting win, right? And I wanted to, that was what I wanted. She wanted the pleasure of going for a hike with me. I wanted the pleasure of watching the Vols stomp on somebody. So <clears throat> those are two pl pleasures that were at conflict because we were not going to be able to get back in time for me to watch from the very beginning of the game if we went on this hike. And so there were words, just being honest with you. And they were mostly mine. So it could be as silly and shallow as that, or it could be something even deeper. James talks about desires and passions. Um, and the word passions he uses is the word from which we get hedonism. It's pleasures. Uh, these are ways that I want to be pleased. For example, these could be some of the desires that are going on in the heart of someone uh, who's in conflict. I want my wife to love me by showing me more romantic affection. That's a want. Or, I want my children to obey me by keeping their bedroom and bathroom clean. Or, I want relief from this chronic back pain and I need other people to take care of me. Or, I want my boss to appreciate me and show it by giving me praise and a raise. Or, I want my teachers to like and respecting me, respect me by re rewarding my hard work, even if it doesn't make the grade. Um, those are all just examples of things that we want that we're trying to get someone else to give us, and when they don't, there's conflict. At any given time, our hearts may be wanting Affection, they may be wanting approval, they may be wanting applause, they may be wanting just attention, or so many things. So take some time to examine, what is it that I want that's contributing to this conflict? Next, we've got describe it, desires. Now ask, how, how are you depending? In other words, how are you depending on or expecting the other person to give you that desire. What does that look like for you to want that from them? And then, James, I think, is describing how that depending, when, when we depend on that person and they disappoint us by not giving we, us what we want, we ramp it up to demanding. So now ask yourself the question, how did my dependence on this person for this desire that I have turn into a demand that they must come through for me? And then James would have us, after we've considered how our desires have turned from dependence on a person to demanding from a person, which fuels this conflict between us, James then says, now let's get to the real heart of it all. How in this conflict am I dismissing God? Because in verse 3, he says, um, you have not because you do not ask. You don't ask God. And, and even when you do ask, 
You're only asking for God to do it so you can spend it on your own pleasures. So James is saying that conflicts with people can happen simply because we haven't taken our desires to God. We dismiss God by not depending on Him for what our hearts desire. We demand horizontally from people who cannot fill us rather than depend vertically on the one who can. James calls this spiritual adultery. He calls it friendship with the world. A friendship with the world that leads us to make ourselves enemies of God. He's serious about this. You might think, my goodness, how, how can you wanting to watch the ball game be adultery and betrayal of God? So here are some questions, many questions. These are all in the email, but I think these are questions that James would have us ask. Have you asked God to fulfill the desire that you've depended on that other person to meet? Take your desire to God. Even as something as silly as wanting to watch a ball game. Next question, is it a legitimate desire? One that God would say it's okay to ask him for because some of the desires that you have for that other person to meet are, are fine desires for you to have. A husband should want his wife to respect him. A wife should want her husband to serve her as Christ serves the church. So ask, is it a legitimate desire? One that God would say it's okay for him to ask for. And if it is... Are you willing to wait for his timing for him to fulfill it? it? Is it a desire that he would say is not good to have? So this is a desire that's out of bounds. Are you willing then to abandon the desire? This is all in prayer with him over these things. Is it a desire that the other person cannot or should not realistically fulfill? But only God can. There's some of our heart's desires, folks, that your wife and your husband, uh, your friends, can never, never fill. They weren't designed to. They can't. And some of them, they shouldn't. Only God can fulfill some of these desires we have. Are you willing to trust God with this desire and stop demanding that the other person give you what only God can give? Could your refusal to go to God with your desires be called spiritual adultery or friendship with the world? Are, am I willing to go that far as far as James and say, actually, God, my, my lack of talking to you about the things that I most desire is a dismissal of you to the level of adultery and betrayal? Am I willing to put those labels on my unwillingness to talk to him? about what I desire. And then, if you read verses 7 to 10 again, I would ask you to consider which words or phrases that James uses describe what God says a repentant heart looks like. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to, glo to gloom. Will you have that kind of repentant heart about the conflict, conflict you're in? 
and the way you've dealt with your desires. James is helping give us all of this um, fodder for repentance because he doesn't want us to just whack away at the fin. He wants us to kill the shark. A finless shark can still bite. So take time to talk to God about your heart and your part in this conflict. Confess to him how you've sinned against him and the other person. So then we turn to the good news. We've repented and now we believe again. After after James takes us deep into the darkness of the heart of conflict, he he begins to shine the light on a path to hope. Because James knows, as one person said, People who see that their own heart is a bigger problem than their nearest neighbor's sin find the gospel immediately relevant. I'll say that again. People who see that their own heart is the bigger problem, not their neighbor's heart or actions, find the gospel immediately relevant. And this is, again, where James shows us how to do what he said in chapter 1, to receive with meekness and humility the implanted word about Jesus that is able to save our souls. Receive the gospel again. And here's a few ways you can do that, James says. First, trust that God's desire for you is greater than your desire for all that you demand for others. What? God's desire for you is greater than your desire for all that you demand from others. James is saying that God also has a powerful desire, and it's more powerful than yours. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Well, first of all, the ESV has it in quotes, but that's not a direct quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. What James is saying is that the whole Old Testament teaches that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, like a jealous husband who has the right to be jealous over his bride. God yearns jealously for us. He desires us. Remember our call to worship this morning was from Isaiah 54, which says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. This God has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off. For a brief moment, God says, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. His desire for you doesn't quit. And it's greater than your desire for everything but him. God put his jealous longing for you on display in Jesus. God, in Christ, pursued you to the point of taking the guilt and shame of your adultery against him on himself so that you would belong forever 
to a God who will never cheat on you, never leave you, never forsake you. Believe that again. Trust again that his desire for you is greater than your adulterous desires for everything but him. Believe. And then trust, James says, that God's grace is greater than your sin. Just when we think we might be convinced that there's no more grace left for us, I mean, James has made it sound like, you're done, adulterous betrayers. Just when we think there's no more grace left for us, James says the most glorious words in today's passage. Five words. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Paul said it this way, where sin increased, grace all the more abounded. So friends, believe even now that there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you and ask him again to pour out more of his grace on you. Not just grace for forgiveness, which you have to start there. Ask him for grace for forgiveness, but he also promises to give you more grace that you need to see him as the one to whom you want to take all of your desires. The grace Turn to him with your desires first. Ask him for that grace. He promises it. He gives more grace. And then, thirdly, in your believing, humble yourself before the Lord in prayer. I think that's what he's describing in verses 6 through 10. He's describing humble prayer to God. You can't do what James says in verses 6 through 10 without talking to God. You just can't. Submit your proud heart to God. You have to talk to him about that. Resist the devil. (laughs) Now, this is where you talk to the devil. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil like you would leave a toxic friend or an adulterous lover. No. Not anymore. Then James says, draw near again to God Trusting his promise to draw near to you. What does that look like for you to draw near to God? How do you do that? You talk to him. (laughs) Spend time with him in, in all of the means of grace. The word, worship, prayer, fellowship with one another, service with one another. Draw near to him and he promises, though he should Drop you, (laughs) drop me, adulterous person. He promises, if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. I'm here. Trust that promise that he'll do it. And then let even your tears speak to him for you. You Weep, mourn, be wretched, be miserable. Turn your laughter to gloom. Let your tears speak to him. Let it impact your emotions. I remember when I was in college, I wrote a little poem, and one of the lines in the poem was uh, God speaking to me. Does it break your heart when you break mine? Do you ever share the tears I cry? 35 years later, he still asked me the same question. Does it break your heart when you break 
time. So let your tears speak to him for you. And, and not to get him to love you. Don't, don't cry and weep and mourn so that you can get him to love you. But because you're humbled by the persistent and patient love that he's shown you and promised you in Jesus. So that's believing. And then, then he finally tells us in these strange last two verses how to follow Jesus. He reminds us again that the root of faith in Jesus always produces the fruit of Jesus in our lives. Verses, I'm going to read these verses again and briefly uh, show you what I'm saying here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you, since you're not him, to judge your neighbor? So what James is doing, after showing us how to repent of our relational sin and to believe the grace of God in Jesus again, now James sends us back into that relationship, back into that conflict with a new desire to follow Jesus. How? How do we follow Jesus? Two things. He says, first, something you need to stop and something you need to start. He says, stop being the lawgiver and judge in this relationship by demanding that the other person give you what you want. James says that when we demand that others fill us, we act like we're above the law of God, which tells us the law of God tells us not to relate to God and others with a me-first, you-satisfy-me heart, but to relate to God and others with a heart that says, you first, I'm here for you. And so James says, stop putting, your place in the, putting yourself in the place of the lawgiver and judge by demanding that this person give you what you need. And then he says, start doing something. Start having the same heart of grace and love that the true lawgiver and judge has shown you. Where do I see that? Well, James says that when we stand as a lawgiver and judge in our relationships with others, we have failed, he says, to be a doer of the law. And here he's probably thinking of not only the Ten Commandments, doer of the law, but also of Leviticus 19, 16 through 18, which we read earlier. Uh, according to Leviticus 19, a doer of the law is a person who does not hate his brother from the heart. But he's one who reasons frankly with his neighbor and loves that neighbor as much as he loves himself. Well, and this sounds just like Jesus who, who said we'd be known as his disciples if we're doers of his command, his law, to love one another as I have loved you. So James is saying, stop being the lawgiver and judge in this relationship and start doing what the law says yourself. Love this person as you would love yourself. Love this person as Christ loved you. Show them the same grace and patience 
and kindness and love that the true lawgiver and judge has shown you. Repent, believe, and then follow Jesus, James says, in your conflicts. Well, let's tie it all together here at the end. As you move back toward this person with whom you're in conflict, remember, remember that God rejoices over you like a groom rejoices over his bride. That's what Isaiah 62 says. On Micah's wedding day, my son Micah, oh, his smile was as wide as Tennessee is long. I mean, it was just unbelievable to watch him grinning over his, uh, his bride. Um, that's what Isaiah 62 says God is like about you and me because of Jesus. John Owen said it this way, that, that Jesus, for Jesus, and we as his bride, for Jesus, every day is his wedding day. So friends, as you think about this conflict you're in with somebody, think about Jesus and how he sees you. He is grinning over you like a happy groom. Because today again, when you woke up today, it was as if today was the wedding day again. And he loves you. And he pursues you. His desire for you is greater than the desire you have to get that person to do what you want to do. His desire for you is greater than the desire that you have for whatever it is. So three thoughts, and then we'll go to the table. Here's what I would encourage you to do based on what we've seen today. First, be dependent on Jesus to take care of the desire in your heart, the desire that contributed to this conflict. Be dependent on him to take care of it. And once you've taken that desire to him, and I mean literally, once you've discerned what the desire is, Say, Jesus, this is what I want. I, here. <laughs> here it is. Say it out loud if you have to. Because when you've given the desire to Jesus and you're trusting him with whatever that desire is, you've set the other, piece, the other person free from being your savior. And that's sure to change your relationship. Secondly, remember how much, is, how much God has desired to draw near to you even though you dismissed him and made yourself his enemy. Remember his desire to draw near to you and ask God to give you that desire to move toward the person with whom you're in conflict. And third, rest in the fresh sense of God's grace that he's given you. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. By his grace, you're clean, you're loved, and you have the spirit and love of Christ living in you. He's made you ready to give that grace to other people. So ask yourself, all that more grace you've promised me, Jesus, what will it compel me to do now in my relationship with this person? Father, heavy, heavy stuff. Thank you for uh, James's words.
And thank you most of all that you give more grace, that you give more grace. Would you, uh, by your spirit, by the spirit of Jesus living in us, enable us to go back into our relationships and uh, see conflict um, dissolve and perhaps resolved because we um, are being renewed in our relationship with you. And Lord, I understand there may be conflicts that are beyond uh, beyond what the other person even wants to engage in, but you can change our hearts. <coughs> you can resolve it in us. And so I ask that you would do that. Um, Father, would you remind us now as we come to this table, help us to see Jesus, our groom, smiling so widely and, and with such joy and, and love for us, his bride. In Christ's name we pray, amen.